the whole point of science is that it's about what is, not what ought, right? Once traditional morality goes away, the new morality doesn't know its limits. And so it starts stomping around and, and just completely manipulating the discussion of what is and starts seeing in what is some sort of moral instruction. Mm. Science can certainly inform outcomes and what different things would lead to, but it can't tell, it can't tell you what's right and wrong. That's mm. not the role of science. It's supposed to tell you what is. Hello and welcome to The Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill. This is a podcast in which an esteemed guest joins me to talk about the big ideas, the bad ideas, the problems and the controversies of life in the early 21st century. In this episode, I am delighted to be joined by Michael Schellenberger. Michael is a rational environmentalist. He is a writer, author and campaigner who has made a name as someone who wants to tackle climate change, but without all the fear, doom mongering and reigning in of progress. He was a signatory to the Eco-Modernist Manifesto that was published in 2015. That document caused quite the stir by arguing that Greens should ditch the goal of sustainable development and instead make the case for a more focused, intensive use of nature's resources. Michael has for a long time been at the forefront of efforts to make environmental policy more reasoned and more human focused. In 2004, with Ted Nordhaus, he co-authored the essay, The Death of Environmentalism, Global Warming Politics in a Post-Environmental World. That led to the book Breakthrough, From the Death of Environmentalism to the Politics of Possibility, that book and much of Michael's subsequent work calls for a transformation in environmental thinking, away from the focus on preserving nature and towards arguing for technological innovation to overhaul economic life. Michael was president of the Breakthrough Institute and more recently he has been running the organisation Environmental Progress. He is pro-nuclear power pro-economic development, and he doesn't think the Amazon rainforest is going to disappear at any time soon, all of which mark him out from most environmentalists these days. Michael, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. The first thing I want to ask you is, as we speak, Extinction Rebellion are on the streets of London yeah. and many other cities, causing quite the stir and making a fuss and making a lot of noise. And to a lot of people, that's what environmentalism is. It's this depressing... Uh, fear-mongering, end-of-world cultish behavior, you would distance yourself from that. And I just want to ask you how you think environmentalism came to this, how environmentalism's public image came to be summed up in many people's view by, by the likes of Extinction Rebellion. Well, I think you have to go back to the end of the Cold War, um, which uh, I grew up at the end of the Cold War in the 1980s, and I think a lot of us, uh, as it became clear that there wasn't going to be a nuclear uh, apocalypse between the United States and the Soviet Union, between the West and the East, there was, it was sort of a letdown, right? It ended with a whimper, <laughs> not a bang. And I think the and I think that the but the the need for secular people, for secular radicals in particular, to have an apocalyptic vision, and also I think an alternative radical morality to replace. I think what had traditionally been traditional religious morality, traditional religious apocalypse. Yeah. And so we just remapped all of the, the nuclear apocalypse onto climate apocalypse. And I think that goes a long way to explaining why climate activists are so resistant to using nuclear power to solve mm. climate change, which I view as a hundred year problem, not a 10 year problem. 
I think there's more to it than that, but I think that sort of gives us a start in terms of, you know, I think there's something behind why do some people believe the the end is coming, yeah. whereas others don't. And I think it's interesting that they tend to be people that are not traditionally religious. I, the last chapter in my forthcoming book is called False Gods for Lost Souls. And I do think that there's a way in which, and I see them out there and I can identify with the part of them that I think are seekers, that are spiritual people that want to view their life as having greater meaning than just mm-hmm. the hundred years that we, you know, embody this planet. And I appreciate that. I think there's something really profound there, but I think that they're quite lost. And I think they're, they're pursuing gods that, qu- that can't satisfy their desire. So you would make a distinction between climate change as a, as a practical issue, as a kind of a policy concern, which would require certain forms of discussion and certain forms of intervention. You would make a distinction between that and what currently passes for climate change activism, which you think is energized or motored by something different, by a uh, a culture of fear or this kind of already existing search for apocalyptic scenarios to explain existence and meaning and everything else. Absolutely. I think this issue of wanting to impose a new morality is a really key part of this. So, for example, if you listen to what Greta Thunberg, who's the spokesperson of the moment, is demanding, it tends to be things like don't fly in airplanes, don't drive cars, don't eat meat. Well, on the latter, we now know that if you go vegetarian, you can reduce your emissions by about two to four percent. It's trivial. When it comes to energy sector, well, the solution is clearly nuclear. It's the only thing that's ever decarbonized electricity supplies. The only thing that can decarbonize energy, electricity is about a third of primary energy use. So, but then you kind of, but then they're, they're opposed to nuclear. In fact, Greta Thunberg came out and said, it's too dangerous, expensive, and slow. Well, since when was she worried about something being too expensive? She's saying that we shouldn't have economic growth anymore. (laughs) So what is that about? Well, I think it gets to this. I wrote a column for Forbes where I, I argued, and this is the headline, the reason they hate nuclear is because it means we don't need renewables. Mm. And so if you say, well, we can solve climate change by just transitioning gradually over the next hundred years to nuclear power plants. Well, wait a second. But that means that I can't then moralize over how to eat, how to live. And so I think that that's a big part of the motivation is the desire to moralize, Mm. the desire to impose a kind of morality on society. In fact, in Nietzsche's famous, uh, he wrote three essays as part of a book called The Genealogy of Morals. And at the end of it, he asks, what is self-denial about? What is asceticism about? It, it pa- fabulously predicts environmental, a lot of environmentalism. And he says it's about a desire to gain control over yourself and over others. And so I think that explains a lot of what's happening. Absolutely. I think that's a really good way of putting it. And I, I, I want to ask you about nuclear power and the reasons for the opposition to it, which I find intriguing and very, very revealing. But uh, just sticking with the point you made earlier about the kind of secular search for for apocalypse. I think the the Extinction Rebellion thing really captures that beautifully because I, I visited the some of the protests over the past couple of days prior to recording this, and it's striking the extent to which it has the feel of a religious cult or a secular cult. I, I guess um, you know they preach about end times. They they 
They chant in public about fire, the fire coming to consume mankind. They hand out leaflets, which say in capital letters, the truth. And, you know, the truth apparently is contained mm-hmm. within their leaflets. Their leaflets talk about floods, pestilence. Mm-hmm. Um, right. They say Africa is on fire, which is completely untrue. Right. To me, someone who grew up in a, a, a Catholic family, a lot of this stuff actually is quite familiar uh-huh. in terms of the end of the world and the judgment that will be uh, visited upon mankind. Um so would you go so far now to me as someone who is very skeptical of the environmental movement and and the the reasons that it exists and the arguments that it makes to me this looks like a very irrational manifestation and something that i find deeply concerning but to someone like you who's written a great deal about environmental policy and about the problems facing the environment, do you see anything worth salvaging in movements like Extinction Rebellion, or do you just see them as being completely separate from the kind of things that you and your colleagues are arguing? Well, a yeah, great question. And and just before answering, let me just make a couple of observations, which I put in my, I wrote about the Amazon. I did three columns on the Amazon. Yeah. In fact, it's the most read things I've ever done. And so first of all, the number of fires globally has declined by 25% over the last 35 years, which is great news, okay, because fires, whether or not you're concerned about climate change, create local air pollution and respiratory problems. Nobody likes to breathe heavy smoke from fires. So they've declined. And then the world is reforesting. Now we're still losing forests in the tropical areas. That's because poor countries, developing countries like Brazil are developing, but we're reforesting very quickly in the developed world. And, And I know people think this sounds like some kind of science denial, but it's because of global warming and because of increased CO2, and to some extent, some artificial reforestation in places like China. Mm. But the good news is forests are growing back um, and fires <laughs> are declining. So it's, it's kind of the evidence is literally the opposite of what they're yeah. worried about. So, I mean, I think my view is that, you know, I, I, I share with Plato this view that we are, you know, half half beast, half God in the sense that. Our rational sides are very, very powerful. Obviously, all of this prosperity and modernity we owe to our rational selves. But there is this irrational side of us. I referenced Nietzsche earlier. He was someone that thought a lot about this too, where once the, once science had sort of, let's say, uh, I don't want to offend religious believers in your audience, but you know, <laughs> if you sort of, if you kind of go along with the idea that science had debunked a lot of traditional religious beliefs, mm-hmm. including the belief in, in God, Nietzsche's argument was that this desire for an external authority and the the non-rational desire for immortality and transcendence and to some extent a quite beautiful, I think, desire to um, feel part of something larger, that desire still exists. And so what I worry about when we kind of, you know, uh, if we kind of distance ourselves or just sort of want to see Extinction Rebellion as just completely other is that I worry that we are both depriving ourselves of an opportunity to try to rechannel some of that spiritual energy in a more productive direction. And I think at risk of, of letting it become quite destructive. Mm. Um, I mean, we're already seeing it in the form of basically, I gave an example recently of where Norway, a country that has become fabulously wealthy thanks to oil and gas, is drilling for natural gas in Mozambique at the same time that it's working with the EU to deny development aid to natural gas power plants in Africa. I mean, you can't imagine a more sinister behavior than that. Mm. And yet that's where we're at right now. And so that's the stuff that worries me. And I figure if we can't, if we can't find a way to channel some of that 
that irrational spiritual energy in a more productive direction, I worry the impacts it'll have on all of us. Do you not think that there is a, um, I mean, I guess one way to pose this question is what would you say if you, if they gave you a soapbox in the middle of the Extinction Rebellion gathering in London, what would you say to them? Because it strikes me when I was there that there is just such a profound disconnect between their millenarianism and it really does feel like millenarianism and these some of these people are incredibly emotionally concerned that the world is coming to an end and there seems to be such a disconnect between that millenarian view which can very easily cross the line into misanthropy and this kind of uh, belief that humanity is a very destructive force and the kind of things that you are interested in and which spite is interested in which is how do we make the case for a greater human endeavor in mm-hmm. order to liberate all human beings from poverty? Yeah. What's the bridge? How would you, how would you attempt to create a bridge between those two things if such a thing is possible? I don't think it is possible in the middle of the Extinction Rebellion protests mm. uh, because the people there would instantly project things onto me that are not true. And then you just end up becoming a kind of puppet for them. But I was, I did give a talk last night at King's College London, with, which is, what, several blocks away. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so I think if you get a little bit outside to a nice audience, you know, about 50 folks were there, about 25 students, 25 not students. And I did open by presenting – some of the evidence showing, for example, we haven't seen an increase in hurricanes. We haven't, we've actually seen a, 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 a modest decline in the cost of natural disasters when normalized to GDP. I showed the data on the Amazons and deforestation and fires. And I talked to one of my colleagues who's with me afterwards and she said, you know, it was, she said she really liked it because I've introduced that as a different thing in my lectures now because she felt like it kind of calmed everybody down a little mm. bit and it sort of instantly, said, okay, look, the apocalypse is not nigh. Um, doesn't mean there's no risks mm. and nothing to be worried about, but we can at least take that off the table and reorient ourselves around what is the relationship between human flourishing, which is a word I've been borrowing from my libertarian brothers and sisters who use it so well, um, <laughs> and environmental protection, because there's this idea that there's a one-on-to-one trade-off that's just false. Yeah. Um, there are trade-offs, but there's also ways in which human economic development can allow the natural world to to come back. And so, but again, you can't get there in the middle of that protest. You can't get there with everybody with their hair on fire. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree, literally and figuratively. Maybe. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Following on from that, you mentioned your pieces that you've written on the Amazon, and um, I'm not surprised they are among your most read pieces because they were excellent pieces of work and i think this the popularity of them i think probably speaks to a desire among a great number of people for a more rational account of what's going on in the world and a, a, a clearer understanding of what human beings are doing and a counter to the doom that we often hear, including in the mainstream media, not just on Extinction Rebellion protests, about humanity's impact on the planet. So for, for listeners who haven't read those pieces, and we obviously encourage them to read them, could you give us a, a brief summary of, of because the rainforest and, and the Amazon are so key to environmental thinking and have been for a number of years. Uh, even when I was a kid, we were talking about this stuff. So could you give us a, a, a breakdown of, of your view of what's really happening there and what, uh, and why the story about it is so often wrong? Yeah, sure. And it's such a, God, it's such an interesting story. And I, you, you alluded to it when you said, 
you know, the rainforest. I mean, even it used to be called the jungle, by the way, right? <laughs> and even in, in Spanish and Portuguese, there's words for rainforest that sound nicer, floresta, as opposed to jungle, which is selva, you know. And so it does, it's changed. And so one of the things, there's actually one of the best studies ever done of how human consciousness shifted in, in its thinking about the natural environment uh, was done in Britain. And what they, what he concluded was it was only after the, there was a, people living in cities that we started to appreciate nature for nature's sake. Mm-hmm. So it was only after we achieved a certain level of prosperity. In fact, that was the moment that we started letting our, our pets into the house mm-hmm. rather than being wild animals outside. So what's, what's happening in the Amazon is this is sort of the last contiguous rainforest. It is not a virgin rainforest in the sense that it was farmed before the Europeans came. There's 30 million people living in the Amazon basin. It's an area that doesn't, it's not just in Brazil, but also in Peru, in Peru and Bolivia. And so there's a lot of development going on. And the traditional pattern has been that they go in and log for the valuable lumber and then they run and they cut down the rest of the trees to run cattle and then that allows them to get ownership so it's sort of like a landstead a homestead act like we have in the united states so that's how you get ownership you establish ownership by by deforesting and establishing cattle where i think things went wrong was that the conservation movement and i haven't figured out yet how when it exactly went wrong but what they did is they said you should only be able to cut 50 percent to 80 percent of the land and that was violated quite a bit but the, what it ended up doing is having the, the counterproductive impact of extensifying, of actually making deforestation more widespread and fragmenting the habitat. So what you want from an environment, just from a strictly environmental conservation point of view, you want to concentrate human activities in cities, concentrated farms, and that allow, and then you want to protect more contiguous areas so big cats and, and wildlife can move around without having to move through farms, which is impossible. So that's sort of the big picture. I think there was a, I wrote about, I wrote a column about how Giselle Bunchen, who's this mm-hmm. super mo- Brazilian supermodel, flew over parts of the Amazon that had been uh, deforested and were now cattle pasture. And she was with the head of Greenpeace and he's describing the fall from Eden and whatnot that's occurring in the Amazon. And she starts to cry. And, you know, when you, the, when the camera points down at the ground and you look at it, you know, it's actually quite lovely. It's cows on pasture and there's flocks of birds flying. I mean, it didn't look like the kind of brown stumps, mm. you know, the kind of eco side that gets depicted. It looked quite like the British countryside or it looked like, you know, Provence or Napa. And so I kind of commented, I said, does she cry when she flies over Provence? <laughs> Does she cry when she uh, flies over Tuscany? Mm. Well, these were these were forested areas. They're now, in fact, environmentalists love to go to high end cattle ranch resorts to talk about the burning of the rainforest. Yes. And so, what's going on here? And that's where I think you know it's it's some of it's just historical ignorance, and she just doesn't have any idea. But some of it, I think, has a more sinister side of it, which is where I point out in some of my articles where Emmanuel Macron had a economic motivation to hype the rainforest destruction right before the G7 talks because he, the French farmers were pressuring him to not do a free trade deal with Brazil because it would have led in a lot of cheap soy and, and beef. So there's more to say to it, but that's a sort of encapsulation of, of part of what's happening. Yeah, it's a very good encapsulation. And I, I think one of the things that strikes me is that 
there's this tendency towards the sacralization of nature. And I think the, the rainforest really speaks to that. The rainforest issue or the, the Amazon issue really speaks to that because that's been in the lexicon of environmentalists for a very, very long time now. And it's, and it is the, it's the Eden complex. It's this supposedly perfect land and every single encroachment upon it is held up as proof of humanity's sinfulness. And this is taught in schools. This is taught in the education system, in popular culture. And it's almost like in relation to the Amazon issue in particular it's like one part of the world has been turned into this symbol mm. of the marauding nature of mankind i wonder if uh, what you think that tells us about environmentalism in relation to the dynamics between the developed west and the developing non-west because one of the things that strikes me particularly about the amazon issue is that there is this tendency among you know usually quite well off often well connected environmentalist campaigners in in western countries to insist in a sometimes quite neo-colonial way that other parts of the world should be left untouched and that their governments should even be restricted by international treaties from doing particular things with their land. So do, do you think part of the Amazon discussion speaks to a kind of perhaps unwitting neo-colonial arrogance among Western green activists? Oh, I mean, without question, it, it is. I mean, Look, Europe is developed and the United States too because we deforested our forests and we used we burned fossil fuels for 200, you know, I mean here in Britain, what, 300, 400 years. And now at the moment that we've achieved this high level of prosperity, we say we'd like you to go ahead and not burn any fossil fuels and leave your forests intact. And so the point I gave you about Macron shows mm -hmm. that this is actually quite in, in direct service of the demands of a domestic uh, farmers. You know, I sort of see George Monbiot and others say, well, we should rewild Britain, but I don't see that going anywhere. I mean, so it's like, well, why don't you guys go ahead and rewild Britain and then get back to us on the Amazon? You know, <laughs> same thing for the United States. Now, I mean, the good news is, is that as Europe and the United States have become more productive with agriculture, thanks to industrial agriculture and significant energy inputs, including fossil fuel inputs in the form of fertilizer, tractors, irrigation, we have uh, we're so agriculturally productive, you know, wheat yields 300 percent increase since 1960. That's allowed for our more marginal farms to go back to grasslands and forests. That's mm. why we're getting that reforestation here. But that's not because we're moral, more moral than the Brazilians. I mean, what's frustrating is I lived. So I was a I'm a PhD, uh, anthropology PhD dropout and I was working in the Amazon, which is a, which is a, dates back my interest in this to the 90s. And it's not like, I mean, I think there's this sense, and this is what I find sort of most dispiriting about the Extinction Rebellion people, but the Greenpeacers and others, which is that there's the sense in which people that are, that are, that are logging forests are bad. Yeah. There's a more, the moralizing, you know, and I saw it with the Greta Thunberg stuff. It's just kind of like, how dare you? Mm. The richest people in the world condemning the, some of the poorest people. I mean, life in the Amazon is really hard. Mm. I mean, it is hot. It is muggy. It is difficult. I was working in communities that were doing slash and burn agriculture, and they would drink cachaça, which is the local rum drink, before work because it was so brutal and difficult. You know, uh, no running water, no electricity. So to condemn those people for Giselle Bündchen and Greenpeace, mm flying in their private little plane <laughs> above them to condemn them. Of course, it's neo-colonial. Yeah. What else could it be? It's also ignorant and ahistorical, but that's not an excuse for any of it. You're listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. 
If you like this podcast and Spike's other podcasts, and also the articles and essays that Spike publishes every day, please think about giving us a donation. Spike's content is free and we want to keep it free, and donations really help us to do that. Head over to Spike's donation page now at www.spiked-online.com. I often find when I have media debates with Extinction Rebellion people or Greenpeace people, the, the, the major sticking point, the major conflictual aspect of the discussion is always over what I consider to be their attitudes towards the developing world. And you see the same kind of attitudes in relation to China or cities like Mumbai and, and these cities, which undoubtedly, uh, I've been to China a few times and there is undoubtedly, there are undoubtedly environmental problems. There is smog in Beijing. It's difficult to see on some days. They have gray sky days where you can't really see very much. But the point I make to some of these kind of, you know, pretty well off greens in the West is that this is, these are the birth pains of industrialization, which we, we are lucky enough to live in societies that have already been through that. And so there is this tendency to almost raise the drawbridge. Absolutely. And, um, I, I, you know, I'm not someone who is very fond of Vladimir Putin, but when he said that he doesn't like Greta Thunberg's message because it has no, answer to people in Africa and Asia who want to be as rich as people in Sweden. That's a very good point. Well, that's why he's such a sort of brilliant leader, though, too. Brilliant public relations, because and I mean, I have, I think I probably have the same feelings that you do. I mean, you know, because the, if we do nuclear, we follow the Russians and they're out there selling nuclear plants to Asia and yeah. Africa. And, and for him to be out there defending th- their right to develop is spot on. Yeah. So I absolutely agree. We call it kicking away the ladder in the United States. Yeah. Um, I think it's the same thing as the drawbridge. Yeah. You know, and I think it's interesting because, of course, like the dark greens anticipate our argument. And yeah. so then they say, well, that's why I don't eat meat. And it's like, lady or whoever it is, sorry, man, (laughs) you know, you going vegetarian is a pretty small price for you to pay to get the pleasure of moralizing against weaker people. Yeah. You know, so I think that's, you know, for me, even in our own, because we, you know, we get into arguments and, you know, it's politics and we're always having fights. But I just, as a rule, don't punch down. Mm. You know, if you're not punching up, you're doing Mm. something wrong. Yeah. You know, if you're out there, you know, punching down on Brazilians and Indians and Africans, there's something wrong with you. Yeah. You know, something deep, you got a deep kind of spiritual soul sickness that needs to be addressed. And to some extent, I think what you're doing and what we try to do is just, just calling it out yeah. and confronting it is absolutely the first step. I think we need to figure out some way to go beyond it and offer these lost souls some better religion than the one that they've got, <laughs> because it's just, it's getting worse in some ways, not better. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I find it staggering. I don't, I don't know if it's similar in the US, but in the UK, the green movement tends to be dominated by people who are not just middle, upper middle class, but, you know, posh, posh people from aristocratic backgrounds and, you know, people who've had wealth and comfort in their families for generations. And what they find themselves doing is lecturing those of us who've had comfort in our families maybe for one or two generations and also lecturing people who still don't have any wealth or comfort in their family life you know the three billion people who still live in dire poverty i find that just extraordinarily arrogant but i want to i want to take a step back and talk a little bit about your 
personal journey. Because, Can I make one more comment yes, about please, that? <laughs> please I thought it really, I mean, I just, because there's so much symbolism. All, I thought one of the moments for this was when Prince Harry was barefoot and lecturing <laughs> all of the other global celebrities on an island off the coast of Italy. Was it Sicily? It might have been. Um, yeah. at a, you know, they all flew their private jets in, yeah. but then he was barefoot lecturing them. I mean, there's so many moments of it, but that, that just sort of, for me, that typified it. And the other, the other observation I would make is that I'm always, you know, Hollywood and actors, but really all of Hollywood are absolutely some of the worst people on these issues. Mm -hmm. And I think it's because it's a combination of being really rich and out of touch combined with being creative types who are in a business of fantasy. Yeah. So I think they're, you know, these people, they get kind of wrapped up in this fantasy of I am, you know, they're heroic fantasies. I am saving the world by more by me moralizing about my veganism, yeah. you know, and my strict smoothie diet. I am saving the world. It is my just to just to build on it, because I think there's just uh, I think there is some for me, it's like some liberation just in identifying, you know, what it is and, yeah. and who's doing it. And, yeah. um, you know, I made a I wrote an article after the Prince Harry thing when he got busted for flying on private jets while, while moralizing about climate change. That, you know, I think that we sometimes go there when we say they're hypocritical, it makes it I think we, it sounds like that sort of accidental. Yeah. And what I pointed as I go, you know, actually, you know, hypocrisy is an expression of power in a way. And the person behaving hypocritically is saying, I am so powerful that I'm not even accountable to the truth. Mm. You know, it's like it's like, sure, I'm I'm I might be hypocritical, yeah. but so what? Yeah. You know, that's my right by being such a great powerful person yeah so morality and power obviously and it's funny because of course the left is just obsessed with power right now yeah and i think that and and but you see them actually but you're pulling off these power moves that are profoundly unethical i couldn't agree more i thought a, a very good example of that was emma thompson taking a, a first class flight mind you to all the way from los angeles to london in order that she could take part in an extinction rebellion protest and lecture the rest of us about the evils of flying and it, it was exactly as you describe it because a news presenter said to her oh did you at least fly economy which is a bit more eco-friendly and she said of course not why on earth would i do that and it was this <laughs> assumption yeah i'm such a good Ugh. person i'm so pure i'm such a i'm such a mo i'm such so morally untouchable by you plebs that it doesn't really matter what i do well and they get angry and they, when they yeah. get when someone confronts them on it <laughs> Which just, you know, which just reinforces the, the sense of unaccountability. Just to take a step back on, on how you came to this point, because I know, I mean, I'm presuming that you used to be a fairly traditional environmentalist. I know, for example, you used to be anti-nuclear and we want to get onto nuclear in a moment. So there have been some changes in your thinking and, um, you've come to a point where you are now very critical of, dark green politics and some of the kind of hysteria, particularly about the developing world. So, so what, what were the steps that you went through to, to arrive at the way in which you think about the environment and, and politics today? Yeah. I mean, I was, I mean, I was both a kind of left-wing radical and concerned about the environment. So I was, I was, I was Marxist and socialist in my youth and I went to, I actually persuaded my high school principal to let me spend the fall semester of my senior year in high school in Nicaragua because I wanted to participate in the Sandinista Socialist Revolution. And that still wasn't enough to beat the leftism out of me. It was, um, I had a very romantic view of small farmer cooperatives, mm. maintained that for several years, went to Brazil, actually interviewed the, the who would become the president of Brazil, President Lula. 
you know, interviewed, you know, Workers' Party senators uh, and was very inspired by the Workers' Party and in some ways still have some, still retain some of that initial inspiration, you know, despite the fact that it was one of the most corrupt political mm-hmm. parties in the world. But I was never, what I will say is I was never Malthusian in the sense I would never because I went so early to Latin America and lived with people and got to know people that had six and eight kids or more and lived on a farm, I never thought there's too many people or, you know, particularly too many brown people, mm. too many poor people. So I never had that and always rubbed me the wrong way. And then it was really finally being in the Amazon for, you know, an interview. When you interview, <laughs> the interview, it's like the young people in the community would be like, hey, Michael, how do we get out of here? Yeah. How do we get to the city? How do we get to the university or even high school? Because, the, you know, it's a drag, you know, and me spending time in small farmer communities and being like, wow, you know, really not as romantic as I thought it was yeah. after a week or two there with, you know, it's very boring. I mean, that's part of it. I mean, it, life is hard, but it's just, you know, I mean, Marx, Marx and Engels, I think it's in the Communist Manifesto. They said something like, you know, the great thing about communism, the great thing about capitalism is it rescues people from the idiocies of, yeah. of rural life. Yeah. So it's funny. I mean, one of the things I'm very, I mean, I'd be interested in your take on it too, which is how did Malthusian environmentalism <laughs> marry itself to socialism? Mm. You know, because of course the argument of, of James Dellingpole, you know, is that environmentalists are just really socialists, the yeah. watermelons yeah. Green outside, but around the inside. But of course, you know, Marx had, just had they hated Malthus. Malthus was a very sinister aristocrat defending a kind of feudal early capitalist status quo. But how did that happen mm. exactly? And I haven't quite figured it out. There's a way in which I just think as socialism became discredited in the 20th century, the left needed some other apocalyptic grand theory and they went to Malthusianism. But it's I think it's a it's a been a tension in that movement for a while. There's certainly been divisions in it. But Anyway, that's a long way of saying I, I think that the, I was never anti-humanist in the mm. ways that I think a lot of environmentalists are. And then once you, you know, spend any time in the reality of small farmer life, you realize how wonderful industrialization and urbanization are. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, I think that that question of how the the left embraced Malthusianism is is one of the key questions of our time, actually, because that's where they have ended up. Uh, large sections of the left have ended up in this world. And as you say, Marx and Engels and later radical Marxist writers as well looked with absolute contempt upon Malthus. And Marx, I think, described his arguments as a libel against the human race. And their key argument against Malthus was that he treated poverty as a natural phenomenon, whereas their argument was that it was a social phenomenon and it could be therefore overturned through social uh, endeavor. Uh, so th- I find that one of the most depressing things. I mean, I, I also consider myself who, someone who comes from a radical leftist background and one of my heroes is Trotsky, which is a hilariously unfashionable thing to say in this mm-hmm. day and age. But his argument was that the job of anyone who wants to improve society is to argue to increase the power of man over nature and decrease the power of man over man. And mm-hmm. as far as I can see, many, many modern leftists do the opposite of both of those things. They want to decrease the power of man over nature and increase the power of man over man through their various kind of petty authoritarian measures or their restrictions on economic development and various other things. So that's a key question, but I think it's kind of... um You had a thing, by the way, I think it's you. You talked about how much of what we call left is not left. 
or really it seems like what what happens is that there's a pretty big shift from the sort of traditional socialist even social democratic left and the new left yeah and the new left becomes quite reactionary mm. the new left is an environmental left it becomes very reactionary so but i mean i'm interested in it. i was very interested in spiked i absolutely fell in love with this video i saw i don't know if, which is some some spiked woman goes to africa and interviews small farmers who are like working with primitive tools. Yeah. And she's like, you know, would you like to have a power saw rather than a, and the guy's like, yeah, but aren't, but wouldn't that destroy your culture? You know? And I think I saw her in a panel and then she was sort of like, you know, it's just kind of like, well, maybe she doesn't want to carry water from the river mm. in a, in a bucket on her head. Maybe she wants to go down to the pub. Yeah. You know? So, but the, the idea that you're, but the, the, the twisted part was the ways in which, environmentalists and the new left think they're protecting yeah. small farmers from the horrors of modernity yeah. as opposed to like, no, actually you can continue to be a small farmer in modernity, but at least you have a choice Yes, whether you want to be a proletariat or a small farmer. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. But the, you know, one of the most disgusting things I've ever heard about was this scheme that people like Prince Charles and others were involved in about 10 or 15 years ago, where you could offset your carbon use. So all your flying around and driving your cars and all that fancy stuff, you could offset that stuff by paying farmers in India to use traditional methods of farming. So what this, uh, and there was a little bit Boy. of an expose of this in, in, even in the liberal media here, because what it meant is that children in some instances were doing backbreaking work on the land on the condition that uh, it would make people like Prince Charles and other wealthy Westerners feel better about their sinful lifestyles. And you think this is actually a form of eco-slavery because what you're doing, you, you as a, as a wealthy Westerner are, are living it up and living the nice life that they actually want to and keeping them in this subjugated position. So you don't feel so bad. Right. And I, I thought that really summed up how badly wrong the left has gone. Not that Prince Charles is on the left, but the left is certainly insufficiently critical of this stuff. Absolutely. You're listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. Subscribe now so that you never miss an episode. And it would be great if you could give us a rating and maybe even a review. That is a really good way to help new listeners discover the show. In relation to your story then, which is a fascinating one, Let's talk a bit about nuclear power. So that's one of the issues on which you have had a change of mind. And you said earlier on that, and, and I think this strikes many people as being completely true and, 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 and quite obvious as well, which is that nuclear power would strike many people as a pretty clear solution to lots of the problems related to fossil fuel or older industries or things that might not be sustainable for the rest of time. So just to explain a bit about maybe, I don't know, was it a Damascene conversion that you had to nuclear power? But explain a bit about how you came around to the thinking that nuclear power was actually a pretty good thing. Right. Well, so I mean, I think even as I had moved away from my small farmer romanticism towards a more stronger embrace of urbanization and, pro and, and economic progress and economic growth, I then wanted to focus on climate change because it was sort of the new apocalypse. I was very attracted to the big issue. Mm thought renewables just sort of took for granted that renewables were going to be the solution. This is in the early 2000s. We also felt, though, that the restrictive model of making fossil fuels more expensive wasn't going to work just for strictly political reasons. So we argued for a big government investment in renewables. And we ended up, uh, we advocated for it for several years. We succeeded. We persuaded Team Obama 
to embrace it. Between 2009 and 2015, the U.S. did about $150 billion. So I was one of the architects of the original Green New Deal. Everything in the Green New Deal that you hear talked about, whether in Europe or the United States, we did it in the, in the early and late 2000s. Well, right away, we start having huge problems with renewables. One of the most important ones are environmental problems. Uh, it takes, just to give a sense of it, 450 times more land to produce the same amount of electricity from a solar farm as a nuclear plant. <laughs> and the people who are all protesting the solar farm are conservationists worried about the desert tortoise or the bats or the and the birds. And we're not talking about robins and sparrows. We're talking about condors mm-hmm. and golden eagles and bald eagles and you know, endangered species, big, long lives, slow to reproduce species. So that was a big part of it. And then Stuart Brand, who is sort of our James Lovelock. Mm-hmm. <laughs> In fact, they're, they're friends, James Lovelock, who just turned 100 years old here, although Lovelock was always pro-nuclear. But Stuart Brand is, gosh, he must might be about 80 almost, but he's a kind of a originary hippie. I had participated in some cooperative games that he invented in the 70s called the New Games Festival. Some of my happiest memories as a boy because they were games where there were no winners and losers. It was really quite lovely, hippie stuff. (laughs) So when he changed his mind about nuclear power, it was a big deal. Mm. And you couldn't kind of just dismiss him as you might have others. And at that point, I was probably already pretty receptive to technological fixes to climate change. And then all I had to do was overcome my concern about meltdowns. I was not worried that the bomb was going to spread because of the United States using more nuclear power. We had the bomb. So I really sat down. And I just read the World Health Organization report on the impacts of Chernobyl, which occurred when I was 15 years old. And, you know, people always ask, on the one hand, I say it's a slow process, me changing my mind. On the, on the other hand, it was pretty fast. I saw Stewart's TED Talk. I read the Chernobyl report, probably talked to a few other people, and it was probably a matter of weeks. But what was really hard and what took time was both figuring out how to come out as pro-nuclear without losing all my friends mm. – and also how to, and surviving economically because our donors, even though we do not accept funding, never have from the energy industry because we appreciate our independence and following the, the truth wherever it leads us. It, it's hard, you know, because especially when your donors are older and kind of not intellectually rigorous and maybe just kind of, you know, want to go with their, what their friends are interested in. So, so just moving slowly out of a renewables to a, we need to have nuclear and renewables. You know, I had to do it again recently. I lost a third of our organizational budget on a strictly ideological difference of opinion with other pro-nuclear donors Mm. because, you know, everyone talks about free speech, but donors don't want to fund people who they disagree with. And, you know, and as these things turn out, it was a blessing in disguise because it. I actually, my organization got significantly smaller. We're now four people (laughs) and it's in, it's great in the sense that I actually had to kind of go and do my own work. I had to go do my own research. And so I think that um, I may be answering a question you didn't ask, but it's sort of, I guess part of the answer is I, it wasn't hard for me to get convinced on the, on the rational stuff. Yeah. And it was, but it's really scary. Yeah. You know, and I didn't lose all my friends, but I lost several, you know, I was friends with the, with the head of the Sierra club, which is one of our big environmental groups, a guy, my age, Got along great, you know, similar, you know, kids at the same age, similar personalities, really nice guy, but just the friendship couldn't last, couldn't mm-hmm. survive it. And I just think there's a lot of people, you know, you have to find your your cold self to be able to stick with the, you know, the truth against your 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 warm, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> social network. Your, you know, and especially if you live in a place like Berkeley, it's kind of like 
you know, it's hard to just go out to parties with other environmentalists yeah. um, when there's so much hostility <laughs> towards you. It's, uh, I mean, that is fascinating. And I find the whole nuclear question really fascinating. And I think it really does reveal so much about what is motoring environmentalism and, and the problems of environmentalism. So, you know, there are so many facets to the opposition to nuclear power. I mean, the one that gets flagged up most, including particularly by right-wing environmentalists, is that so many green movements have vested interest in renewable energy and they've got money invested in it and they're making money from it and therefore they're, you know, violently opposed to nuclear power. I'm sure there's some truth in that, but I think it goes way beyond that. And I think it touches, you mentioned earlier, the possibility that one of the problems with nuclear power that they have is that it would resolve something that is actually beneficial to them. And I think that's something that is, um, will strike a lot of people as quite a radical thing to say. But I do think that it strikes me more and more, the more I see this, the more you think to yourself, um, a lot of these problems that they talk about, some of them are very real problems, but they are relatively straightforwardly resolved if we were to put our minds to it. But there seems to be an unwillingness to do that. So to what extent do you think they are, the, the opposition to nuclear in particular, is a, is a conscious attempt to hold back a resolution to something that is quite satisfying and, 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 and which gives meaning to these campaigners' lives. I mean, I think that's at the heart of it. You know, in my book, I, the last three chapters are, it's all about the green, which is about the kind of financial and economic motivations. The second one is why they think they hate progress. That's kind of about the political and ideological. And then the third one is the, is the false gods for lost souls, yeah. which is the sort of spiritual or psychological dimension and they're sort of nested in each other. I don't know how you kind of different layers of it. So I do think that's just a huge part of it. And again, I go back to just, I think that for secular people here, you've kind of, we've, you know, we've made it right. I mean, like we're all going to live to, we can, you know, if we take care of ourselves, we can live to be pretty old. Yeah. Our kids are going to survive. Um, you know, we don't all live like Kings, but we're all going to have a pretty good life. And a lot of us can retire pretty darn young, you know, historically and, and globally speaking, and you kind of go, well, what's it all about? And mm -hmm. if you don't believe in God anymore or mm -hmm. heaven, and I think if you're a spiritual, a really spiritual person, I think there's some people that need it more than others mm -hmm. is what I would say. Mm -hmm. People, the creative types, I think need that more than others. I think some people can be like, I'm just in my, I'm happy. I'm fine. I don't need to believe in any <laughs> God or whatever, you know? I'm also struck that I think that all of us experience psychological problems in a smaller way that are, are, that are basically diluted versions of mental illnesses. So I think everybody can be a little bit manic depressive. I think everybody can be a little schizophrenic. Everybody can be a little bit OCD. So I see all three of those behaviors in different environmental. So for example, I think this obsession with plastic mm -hmm. right now, the obsession with trash and litter. And I, I realized this when I was listening to David Sedaris, who's a great uh, a nonfiction writer in the United States talking about how he is OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. And he has to, he goes out on the side of the road and he's a rich guy now, right? He doesn't need to do this. You know, he goes out and he picks up trash because it makes him feel better. Mm. I have another friend, a very strong environmentalist. When she was in college, she became obsessed with sorting the trash, the, the recycling, the litter became a kind of obsession. Yeah. And I think this, you know, the plastics in the ocean, the idea of contaminants, I want to write about. I think this desire for purity and for sort of separation yeah. comes from sort of some kind of OCD. I think the manic depression can be seen in the apocalypse versus the utopia. The utopia is we can be 100% renewable. We can be everything organic. We can be in harmony with nature. We can have it all. 
or the world is going to end mm. and everybody is going <laughs> to die. I mean, that's a manic, that's like a depressive, manic depressive kind of thing. And I think the schizophrenia comes out in the paranoia and the fantasies and the kind of, like you said, the fire and the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And so I think these things are are showing up because they're not these are things that are not being addressed by the meta narratives, the traditional religions of the past. Mm. Certainly as Marxism went away and socialism went away, I think environmentalism took that place after the Cold War. So these are really but this is profound stuff. I mean, uh, I keep coming back to Nietzsche because he was sort of the philosopher who was the first to say Hey guys, the uh, the secularization of modern societies, what you call the death of God, is going to have very, very profound impacts on societies that we're not even aware of yet. And the first big manifestations of that was the rise of nationalism in the early 20th century, culminating in World War II. And after that, there was a kind of backlash against that because of the religiosity of those nationalisms and a kind of return to a secular liberalism. But I think now the Cold War is gone. You know, we're stuck with this kind of secular prosperity and you just have a bunch of people being like, what does it all mean? Mm. And turning towards these really, really dark and apocalyptic fantasies. Mm. I think that your description of the kind of obsessive sorting and fixing and separating rubbish and so on uh, also really speaks to the a, a kind of the ritualistic nature of some of these kind of secular secular slash religious apocalyptic beliefs because i've often wondered because i mean you can read some really super sensible stuff about how recycling doesn't really save the planet it doesn't make that much of a difference and yet people do it you know the middle classes in particular uh in america i think you call them the upper middle classes but, yeah, you know, sure, they, yeah. so but we call them the middle classes you know they do this stuff obsessively and 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 they take pleasure in it because it becomes this kind of ritual the the, the it's the it's the action through which you demonstrate if only to yourself that you're a good person but i wanted to ask you in relation to the the opposition to nuclear and and this possibility that there is this unwillingness to resolve some of these, you know, fairly practical problems of, of pollution and, and climate change and so on. What is the moral benefit that people get? So how would you describe that moral benefit? Is it that they get to lecture other people? Is it that they get to feel pure in contrast with the masses? What moral pleasure do they derive from this apocalyptic worldview that they've embraced? Yeah, de- I mean, definitely there's the the pleasure of moralizing because moralizing is a way of of leveling or putting other people down. And, and you know, so ba- we, we, we feel happy when we feel powerful, right? And so we feel powerful when we feel superior to people and we feel superior when we moralize. So, so that's why they hate technical fixes in general. They hate, it's not just nuclear. They don't want to hear that the solution to sub-Saharan Africa or soil erosion is irrigation, fertilizer, and tractors. It's not complicated, yeah. right? Like grow more fruit on less land, and then you have room for gorillas and and golden monkeys and penguins. I was just in New Zealand, and you know that's how you do it. Like yeah. it's not it's not rocket science. Nuclear adds just an incredible twist to it in the sense that nuclear is – sometimes people say, even pro-nuclear people, they go, oh, we'll, we'll solve climate change with some solar panels and wind turbines and nuclear power and carbon capture. It's like, no, 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 no. Like one of those technologies not like the others. <laughs> nuclear is a revolutionary technology mm. and we're just still not really – the human consciousness has not evolved really to catch up to the technology still. I mean, it's so it's a completely new way of creating heat mm-hmm. that doesn't require fire. We've never had a 
second way to make heat <laughs> without fire, you know, including the sun, you know, unless you, you know, count the sun, which is also a ball of fire. So it's totally radical. Uh, the, the material demands of nuke to create nuclear energy are like zero. Mm-hmm. A Coke can worth of uranium is enough to power my entire high energy life, including all my jet travel. It's extraordinary. It allows, it's the only technology I say that really allows humankind to flourish economically while returning more of the natural landscapes to the natural environment and eliminating air pollution entirely and eliminating water pollution, right? It's extraordinary. And it also, of course, has this incredible destructive power in the form of the bomb. And the, I have a, a book on that I wrote on this. I couldn't, I couldn't get anybody to publish it because <laughs> um, next year is the 75th anniversary of mm. the invention of nuclear energy and the bomb. I wrote a book that's a, that's a contrarian take on the bomb and argues that it is the main cause of world peace over the last 75 years and that that and this is where i coming this is coming to circle back to why are they against nuclear energy soft climate there i am convinced that there was a lot of opposition to the bomb mm. because they knew it was a technical fix to war in other words like indian pakistan there was never a moment where they smoked a peace pipe and were like, we're all going to be, we're all going to have harmony now. They just scared the crap out of each other. <laughs> like you might have missed it, but there was actually a war between India and Pakistan earlier this year. Mm. They get close to war and they go, oh yeah, no, we're not going to do that. <laughs> so here it creates peace, but not through brotherly love. Mm. So I think this is the irrationalism of the rationalist enlightenment. The idea, the Kantian idea was we're going to achieve peace through reason but it turned out that we ended up creating peace through the bomb. And that was deeply unsettling to liberals after World War II. And I think it's deeply unsettling in the same way that solving climate change with nuclear energy is unsettling. That's fascinating. And your description of the radical nature of nuclear power is fascinating too. And I wonder if that's one of the reasons for the opposition to it, because it does speak more than anything else to mankind's command of nature. I mean, the fact that we can discover new ways all the time to exploit things that have existed for a very long period of time and to drag power from them. I mean, I always am fascinated by the whole nature of coal. You know, in in Roman times, women would wear bits of coal because it looked nice and it would glint in the sun and it would look spectacular, you know, because they hadn't reached the social and and political uh, level at which they would understand that there was something inside coal that you could draw out and use to power machines and new ways of organizing mm-hmm. society. So, uh, and uranium and nuclear power speaks to that in an even more profound way. And I wonder if one aspect of the opposition is that it, it really does demonstrate the spectacular nature of humankind, the fact that we are able to do these kind of things and the fact that a Coke can size of uranium would empower your entire life. So there's also, I think, an element of fear that it does demonstrate a, a point that reasoned progressive people would say, which is that mankind is really super smart mm-hmm. and has it within his power right. to resolve all the problems of the world. Right. And doesn't need me. Yeah. <laughs> in, in other words, it's like we don't, you know, when you kind of go, well, why don't we just do what France did and just build nuclear power plants to solve it? But then that means that what's my role? Yeah. I mean, in the narcissism of the current age too, how, how does, you know, what about me? You know, what about my role? And so the impossibility of renewables, just, they just are terrible in so many ways, right? I mean, here's like, you know, it's completely, they're completely unreliable. They make electricity expensive wherever you use them. They're just crappy, low quality energy, wind turbines and solar panels, right? 
Well, that's part of the that's part of the attraction. Mm. They don't solve the problem. That's why they like them. Mm. The problem with nuclear is that it solves the problem. They don't want to solve the problem. Mm. You solve the problem, well, then then you have an existential crisis. Yeah. Right. I mean, and you, by the way, you see it in all sorts of movements, right? I mean, here you have extraordinary women's rights, you know, gay rights. You you have these movements that succeed, and then they enter in an existential crisis, and they have to go and reconstruct. Yeah. This is this new book by this British uh, spectator writer um, makes this case. Basically, mm. they have these successes, and then that freaks them out. Yeah. And so they have to kind of invent. They have to go see threats everywhere yeah. to their rights. And so I think that's a similar dynamic from environmentalists. Yeah. I'm, I'm actually on it. I've taken on a completely different issue, homelessness, and I'm dealing with the same thing on homelessness yeah. where I'm just absolutely convinced there's just a lot of advocates for the homeless that are actually advocates of homelessness because that is what gives their lives meaning. Right. It's funny. It's the, it's like the terror of victory. It's like the, the, the horror that you might actually be successful and it would make you surplus to requirements rather than thinking to yourself, great, we succeeded. Let's move on to something else that needs our attention as well. And you might have to deal with your own shit personally, yeah. your own, your own personal life, your own inadequacies, your own sense of failure. You have to get your, you have to get your life together. Uh, you don't want to do that. Yeah. I mean, it's you like, can be moralizing and feeling good right now on social media. Mm. And then, oh my God, you'd have to go and deal with your life. Ugh, <laughs> terrible. It's like, you know, if, if a priest's flock was to suddenly one day stand up and say, well, we don't need your moral mm-hmm. guidance. We'll find it. I mean, what would the, that person do? It's and that's what happened, dynamic, right? That's exactly dynamic. what happened. So I, I wanted to ask you about science or as environmentalists refer to it, the science, which I always find quite a terrifying phrase, because I think one of the issues I have with environmentalism is, um, it's misuse of science. And, and what it does is it, it, it turns science into, uh, and Greta Thunberg actually speaks to this quite well because she uses science very clearly as a form of moral instruction. And the science tells us to do these things. And she says, all I'm asking you to do is to follow the science and to obey the science. And that seems to me to run counter to the entire nature of science, right. which is it's supposed to be falsifiable. It's supposed to mean that you don't follow revelations but you actually think in an open-ended way about the world so i wonder if environmentalism hasn't only um had a terrible impact on the case for progress but also has ironically had a destructive impact on science itself well not that but it's just literally like the whole point of science is that it's about the what is not what ought right there was always supposed to be this bright line between scientist science and morality well that boy they ran over that bright line many years ago didn't they and so it's really the encroachment of of morality over so i mean i think this gets back again to once traditional morality goes away the new morality doesn't know its limits and so it starts stomping around and and just completely manipulating the discussion of what is and starts seeing in what is some sort of moral instruction. Mm. I mean, I find this even on on with the with supposedly rational folks. Um, guys, Sam Harris wrote a book where he su- he supposed that you could figure out what's moral through science. Mm. It's like I object to the whole premise. Mm. <laughs> you know, that's. That's that's not right. <laughs> you know, like science could certainly inform outcomes and what different things would lead to, but it can't tell it can't tell you what's right and wrong. That's mm. not the role of science. It's supposed to tell you what is. Completely agree with that. Um I have one more question for you. Well, I've got a million questions, but I'm gonna yeah. just keep to one yeah. uh in the interest of time. One of the things that I find quite frustrating is that I make similar arguments to you, not as well. And in relation to, you know, I'm someone who's interested in progress, I'm interested in economic growth, I want 
all human beings to be liberated from poverty uh, in a very serious way. And I think science is wonderful, but it shouldn't be corrupted by political interference. And I think freedom and choice and progress are all good qualities. And yet very often environmentalists will turn around and say, oh, you're right wing. You're a fascist. How can you say these things? Who's paying you to say these things? You've been corrupted by the oil industry or, or whatever else they say. How would you counter that kind of cynicism? Because it, it strikes me that the kind of things that you say and people around your circles are pretty positive, pretty inspiring and pretty optimistic. So how would you counter that pushback that people like you sometimes get in which you are branded an authoritarian or a right wing, uh, contrary to the evidence. What's your response to that kind of? Well, yeah, I mean, I think the first thing you're pointing to is just that this is a very confusing time for what is left and right. I mean, you, I pointed out you make this great argument that what we call left isn't left or it's new left. I don't, you know, I was asked yesterday, am I in favor of free trade? And I was like, I don't even know what that means anymore. I'm in favor of economic growth. I'm very clear about that. I'm not sure that I know what free trade means. You know, I think there's all sorts of questions around the role of government that used to define right and left that are not actually things that define it as much anymore. So I just think the first thing is just to sort of acknowledge that we're in a state of complete confusion. Everybody is. And we should have a, I think in those moments, we should be a little bit kinder and more tolerant and open minded. Mm. It's interesting. Right before I came here, I saw that Ellen, who's one of our great comedians in the United States, was at a football game with the former president, mm -hmm. George W. Bush. And she got tons of crap for it, for sitting with him. And she got up and she was like, look, I just think you should, we should be kind to everybody, not just to the people that we agree with. And of course, she got all sorts of attacks for it. But like the fact that that's controversial right now mm. is, is sort of dispiriting. On the other hand, I think what gives me hope is that in this huge tumult and chaos, I do think that those of us that are willing to talk to each other and willing to disagree in a civil way and willing to be kind to each other and, and listen and have that conversation, that there's so much desire for it. I mean, I find that the response to my stuff that I'm getting, I mean, my social or my social media right now is like, I think for you guys is just going, is very intense. I have a lot mm -hmm. of people that are like, thank you you know, for just being focused on what works. Because, I mean, I think when I come to all these issues, I'm kind of like, well, can we just f figure out what actually works to solve the problem, mm. you know, before we kind of jump to whether it's right or left or or does it fit my tribe and your tribe? So I do think that where, I find, where I'm finding hope with it is that in these moments where there's so much dogmatism and tribalism and ideology that – that those that, that people that are you know truly seeking for the truth and understanding and discourse and reason stand out and we end up finding each other right um, across oceans and across borders. Michael, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.